all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and their rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. As always, this is God's word, and please be seated. Inside of the bulletin, you'll find uh, on that same sheet that has the order of worship, you'll find an outline that you can use uh, to take a couple of notes as we, we look at this text that, uh, that Roger just read for us. I would encourage you to do that. Down at the bottom, you'll find the questions that, uh, that are going to be addressed in small group tonight. And uh, again, you can take some notes and be ready to, and prepared to, to converse tonight in small group about what we're going to talk about here in the next uh, uh, 90 or 120 minutes. <laughs> hey, I'm just kidding. Let's begin with prayer. Uh, Father, we come into your presence admitting that we need to be challenged. We need to be challenged. We need to be challenged to, to stand firmly in the blessings of the life that you have given us, that abundant life that comes from, from being forgiven and being embraced and being adopted into your family and living in your presence with your spirit each and every day and to show the beauty of that life that is able to handle whatever comes at it during the day, the years that we live. And we are grateful, Father, that we are never abandoned. Never. Not one day do we live without you. And we're grateful for every promise that has come true in Christ. That it helps us, Father, to have a filter in which to see everything that takes place in this world. And so as we look at this text, Father, which offers to help us to understand one of the challenges that comes to living that life. We pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that we are moved closer to you and to the reality of these passages. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I love our mission statement. Love God. Love people. You change the world. You know, when you love 
somebody. You begin to love the things that they love. When Ellen and I first got married back in 1982, she was 20, I was 21, still in college. She had only been living in the United States for a couple of years after coming home, growing up in Africa as a missionary daughter, meeting in college. And we married. And uh, I knew this at the time, but I did not know it in the way that I know it now. But Ellen growing up in Africa, had not been exposed to the greatness that is the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, in 1982, she had gone to bed, and I was up studying, and it was a Monday night. And the Cowboys were playing the Minnesota Vikings. And it did not look very good for the Cowboys at that time. And all of a sudden, you know, they've got the ball, they're down on like the half-yard line. And you're just going, oh man, just, you know, don't get a safety. Next thing you know, Tony Dorsett is running 99 yards for a touchdown. Record that still stands, it'll never be broken. Now, to Ellen's unblessing, this was the beginning of instant replay. And I was so thrilled that even though she was asleep, I wanted to share this moment with her. And so I grabbed her out of bed and I said, you've got to see this baby. And we, I, I carry her literally into the living room so she could watch instant replay. I was so excited that I was not looking at her eyes. And Ellen has very communicative eyes. They speak three languages. And, uh, that was the beginning. She sort of knew. She had a sense that we were, we were people of the Dallas Cowboys. But she began to, because she loved me, she began to learn how to, to, to love, hate, hate, love the Cowboys. And now she can, she can badmouth the Cowboys just like me. <laughs> but when you love someone, you love the things that they love. And that's why we remind ourselves from time to time that we, we love God. And the reason we love people is because God loves people, and we love God, and God loves people, and so we love the things that He loves. And so that means that we change the world. That mission statement is couched in Matthew chapter 22 and Matthew chapter 28. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And go into all the world. Jesus is with us. Go into all the world and make disciples, which is a blessing, to, to be forgiven, to be blessed, and to love the things and to do the things that God loves in this community. Well, somewhere, somebody wrote another famous statement, and that statement was, no good deed goes unpunished. Billy Wilder, Oscar Wilde, one of those two. What was meant by that statement in a universal sense is sometimes experienced by disciples of Jesus. It's true for us to to do a blessing that is sometimes not appreciated. Uh, You do not know the name of John Cow. John Cow was born in China, came to the United States to study, became a disciple of Jesus, felt called into the ministry, went into school, got a, a religious degree, a Bible degree, got training And felt he was called not only to ministry, but ministry back in his home country of China. And there he went. 
And for a number of years, he was working with house churches in China when he felt that God was putting it on his heart to go across a nearby border into Myanmar, which is the, the old name for that country was Burma. And in 2014, he began to cross the border without incident and with full knowledge of the Chinese officials. And he was going into this country, formerly known as Burma, and from beginning in 2014, he planted six or uh, built 16 schools in some of the most impoverished areas of, of that nation. And it was servicing about 2,000 children, giving them an education, as well as doing some other kind of initiatives in the community to help people come out of their, their poverty. On March 5th, 2017, he was arrested. And not long after that, sentenced to seven years in prison. There has never really been a reason given for why he was sentenced to prison for seven years, nor why he was arrested. But those that are working on his case and others like it will say that it had something to do probably with the crackdown on house churches in China. If you are a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, you should expect in your lifetime to experience pushback or rejection or even some form of maybe even low-level persecution. That kind of thing did not surprise Christ. And it should not surprise us because he explicitly taught in John chapter 15, do not be, uh, if, if the world hates you, do not be surprised by that because it hated me first. But he who said that also said these words at the beginning of his ministry, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus is not saying is that being persecuted or, or, or experiencing some kind of pushback or rejection does not feel great. He, he, he's insults do not feel great. He's not saying that you're blessed and the feeling of blessedness becomes, is coming because somebody is pushing back or rejecting or even making fun of your faith. What Jesus is teaching, though, is that these things do not take away from the blessed life, that experience of the blessed life of living in God's kingdom. That when you become a child of God, you're not just forgiven which is a great thing to live with a clear conscience, to be able to sleep at night. But when you become a disciple of Jesus, you're being adopted into a forever family, the family of God. There is, there is that sense of, of grace and his overarching presence, the peace that passes understanding, that peace you have in your life, regardless of what's going on. That's really hard to describe, but you experience it, and you know it comes from God because that's the only place it could come. Or that inexpressible joy. And when you begin to sense that kind of life more and more and more, regardless of what might come your way in a pessimistic, in a negative sense, will never outdo that abundant life that is yours and mine and ours in Christ. And so if we care about being a part of what God is doing to bless people 
and to change our city and, 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 and to bring blessing upon the heads of folks around us through the way that we, we help them not only understand the gospel, but the way that those that are hungry are given food and those that are naked are given clothing. And that you know the Matthew 25 passage. That if we choose to care about the things that God cares about and to love the things that God loves, then we need to make sure that we internalize that truth. That nothing that happens to us will ever outweigh the blessing that comes in being in God's kingdom. But how do you do that? Three things. First, recognize your life is not aligned with the surrounding culture. Recognize your life is not aligned with the surrounding culture, which takes us to Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. We're looking after Pentecost in the book of Acts. Luke is the writer. Peter and John, the apostles, and Peter who's preached the great sermon on Pentecost, they're going up to the temple at the time of prayer, about 3 p.m., middle of the afternoon. There is a, a gentleman there that has been crippled in both his ankles and his feet since birth. They, they place him there by the beautiful gate up on the temple mound. And there he's begging. And Peter miraculously heals the man. Everyone there is filled with wonder and with amazement. And Peter sees another opportunity to preach. And Peter is not going to let that opportunity go. He preaches. And afterward, we're told that the priest, the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, they make their way to Peter and John. And they are not a little upset that they are preaching Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Especially those Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Let them cool their heels a little bit, the Sadducees are thinking. Let them think about what it is that they're doing. But many, were told by Luke, heard the message. They believed the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, all the head honchos among the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, they get together and they begin to question Peter and John. And they're asking, by what power or what authority or what name did you do this? Which is another way of saying, who gave you permission to do what it is you're doing? And Peter, with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, replies to their question, is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they're kind of taken aback at the the courage of Peter and John, because when they look at them, they realize that these are not PhD guys. In fact, the word in Greek is idiotas, which sounds like, idiots, which in, you know, it's a perfectly good word. It just means they didn't go to school. That's what it meant. So they send them out and they confer with each other among themselves. And they decide this is what we're going to do with these guys that are preaching in the name of Jesus. We're going to threaten them severely. Threaten them, as my mother used to say, within an inch of your life. Not to preach in the name of Jesus. And this is where Peter famously responds, judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In that moment, if Peter had never gotten it before then, he gets it in this moment, that my life and what I believe to be true and the truth of which drives my life And what gives me joy and what gives me peace and what gives me strength and what gives me confidence in this life and gives me hope for a different kind of a future and that future is going to be absolutely beautiful. That is not aligned with the current culture that I live in. And he makes a choice. He's not being hateful. He's not being mean-spirited. 
He's not going after them verbally and emotionally and he's, you know, insulting them. He's just saying, I choose God. I choose God because of what I've heard and what I have seen. Meaning that I, I have experienced this. Well, that leads to a second thing that they do, and that is to respond in prayer to God. They go back to their people. They tell them what happened. You know, you can imagine that scene. They go back, and everybody is, wait, what happened to you guys? I mean, we saw the miracle. We heard the preaching. Then you guys disappeared. Where have you been all day? Well, we were in prison all night. And then we've been threatened not to preach severely within an inch of our life, not to preach in the name of Jesus. And no one panics. No one panics. Everyone prays. Some years ago, the Mayo Clinic wrote a little article on how people react to stress and a lot of it in their life. Number one, pain. It clench up everything in their body from jaw to fist to shoulders. And they're just tight all the time because of the stress. And it begins, you know, the stress, because they're not dealing with it in, in a, a way that's therapeutic, begins to take it out on their body. Number two, overeating. They don't get even. They get bluebell ice cream. Or anger. Respond to evil with evil. Or my personal choice, crying. <laughs> Cry. Or depression sits in, or negativity, or smoking. Disciples of Jesus respond in prayer to God. Notice three things about their prayer. First, they pray Scripture. I'm so excited about insights and this the study that we're going to be doing at the spiritual disciplines and this idea of praying Scripture. This is what they do first. They pray Scripture, and they do it two ways. First, they begin praying what they know about God in the Genesis creation account. And that in that account, they say, you know what? The God that we're praying to and the God that we're following is the God that created the heavens and the earth, which is a mirrorism, which means that it's not just heaven and earth, but everything in between. And as they pray that scripture in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the knowledge of what God is like, his power and, 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 and his love, it begins to remind them that the God who has the power to create everything that they experience and know is powerful enough to handle this. That's one way that they pray Scripture. The second way that they do it is Psalm 2. They remind themselves of what Scripture has said throughout all of history. That human beings in charge have tried to suppress the God who is in charge. And then secondly, they pray in light of God's character that is revealed in Scripture. The word for sovereign in verse 24 is actually the word despot. In Greek, despotus, which means ruler of unchallengeable power. And when they refer to God as sovereign of sovereigns, as king of kings, as sovereign of sovereigns, they have in effect made up their minds who is in charge of the world at large and especially the little part of the world where their lives have experiences like the ones they just had. That God created the heavens and earth, this is nothing compared to that power. That God is sovereign, that this pushback is historical and God is in charge and he can handle this. 
Which brings us to the third major point and the third element, which is remain unshakable. At the end of their prayer, they're not asking for it to go away. They're not asking for it to go away. They have prayed, you made the heavens and the earth. What's this? This is just historical. People have always challenged your authority. But you are God. Sovereign heaven and earth. And at the end of their prayer, they say, Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonder through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Our prayers in crisis are typically, take it away, take it away, take it away. Help me, take it away. Help me by taking it away. Notice they're asking God to keep healing and to keep doing the things that cause wonder and amazement in people. In other words, God keep doing the very thing that has gotten us into trouble in the first place. They ask for boldness to talk about it even though it might be dangerous and uncomfortable. And so the third element of their prayer is for their lives to bend around the will of God rather than for God to bend his will around their desires. And God answers their prayers by reminding them that he is there. You you know, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he says some incredibly important words. In Matthew chapter 28, as he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, he's given these disciples this incredible task. He says, all of these things that are life-changing to you, and that you have seen and heard in my presence, the miracles, the reversing of sickness and illness, illnesses and, and, and evil being pushed away, all of these things that you see that are causing people to be amazed and full of wonder, and praising God, and full of thanksgiving, you're to do that as well. Teach them how to be in relationship with God. And I will be with you always. And so, a lot of times when we think about this this room shaking, it's it's not that God is coming down because they prayed the right prayer. God is just reminding them of a of a promise that was made by his son sometime prior to that. God is saying, I am here. And you know, the incredible thing about that is, is that, you know, whenever God is described at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, he's walking on the earth, right? He's walking in the garden. He's conversing with men. And there's nothing that is being described even close to an earthquake or things shaking or any of that. It's only after the fall. Earth is not the same. People are not the same. God comes into the presence of people and they don't take his hand and walk in the garden. They're afraid. And they put their face in the dirt. Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, full of places where God comes to the place of fallenness and it shakes. You know, Ellen and I watch a show 
were very fond of a show called The Last Alaskans. Anybody watch that? Are we the only ones with taste in this building? <laughs> if you ever have a chance to watch it, 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 it's the real deal. It's about people that live up in the, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And there are only seven families that can live there now because in 1980 they, they shut all the permits for people to live up there. And these truly are the last Alaskans. And one of the things that, that is a little bit unnerving when you watch the shout is that, you know, it basically takes place during the winter. And it's just, you know, you, you never go anywhere without an axe because there's always going to be a river to cross. And it's usually covered with snow and you can't really see it. And these cats... They'll take that axe, and they'll, they'll tell the camera crew, now you guys need to stay back, and they'll start banging the ice. They'll start banging the ice. And what they're doing is they're, they're testing for thickness so that they can cross, because if you cross and you break through, then because of the current of the river underneath it, you're swept away, and they won't find you until the ice thaws. It's very dangerous. So why, why are they checking for the thin ice? And the answer is not because, because it, it's, you know, it's thin. Thin ice is able to be thin ice, and it doesn't break. When does thin ice break? When a reality more dense and heavy steps onto it. And that's what happens in Jerusalem when they pray this prayer. They are reminded that God is here. That he's not aloof that, you know, they were having a bad day, so he's come, you know, to give them a, a you know, going to coach them up, you know, rally up, elevate up. Yeah. No, God is there, and he's reminding them of the promise of his son. That wherever you go, and whatever it is you're doing in terms of the kingdom of God blessing people, and learning how to love them the way that God loves them, and learning how to change the world, and uh, helping people to understand that discipleship is not about, you know, this grueling, grit-your-teeth kind of a life. But when you're a disciple of Jesus, that yoke is light. And that it is a life that is indescribable in terms of what it means to have the God who is love abide in you. That sins forgiven, a spirit His Spirit is implanted in you at your baptism, at at your washing away of your sins in order for you to become the human being you were always intended to be. But sometimes that's not appreciated. Sometimes there's pushback. The world is thus, and thus have we made it. And God understands this. But He reminds us, He is here with us every moment. When we go out this next week and we love people and we sacrifice for people and we share with people and sacrifice for them and whatever it is we do to bless them and to help them to understand the nature of a God who defines himself as love. And it's through that love that we're able even to be in his holy presence without being destroyed. Who wants to be with us forever and ever and chooses to be with us to the cost of the life of his only begotten son. You know, 
My father died about five years ago. And there's not a day that goes by that, that I don't think about him. I've even started sounding like him, which I'm very happy about. But when you, when you lose somebody that loves you like a father, loves you like a mother, loves you like a spouse or a child, I mean, there's really only a handful of people that love you to that degree. And when you lose somebody like that, that is a significant moment in your life. But then to discover that the one that created the heavens and the earth, who is vast and high and holy and lifted up, surrounded by thousands of thousands of angels, power that is able to create the heavens and the earth, and not just creates this place for us to live, but shows us, even when we weren't looking for it, that he loves us by creating a place like the earth in which there is pleasure and there is delight, fallen as it may be, that still exists. That this God is willing to give up his only begotten son in order for you to have a chance at that life. That's life-altering, to be loved like that. And you know, the things that we do in this life that, uh, that are good and holy, we're not trying to earn that. We're not trying to earn it. We're just trying to live a life that's worthy of that kind of love. And that's, that's what we're doing. When we love God, we love people, and we're changing the world. Helping people to understand not to be afraid of a God who loves them like this. And he's with us at all time. That's not panic. That's not panic. Anytime that we experience these kinds of things, it's historical. It's historical. But God created, God built, and God has redeemed us unto himself. And there's a day that's coming. Heaven and earth come back together again. We're in his presence, resurrection. Right now it's life after death. At some point it's going to be life after life after death, which is the resurrection. And it will be a place of glory and of greatness and of beauty and of majesty. That It's like a West Texas sky. Just to think about it, it's like looking at a West Texas sky. The blue just makes your eyes tear. The thought of a heaven like that and what he's doing. And he's here with us now as we try to share that with other people. If you have never in your life decided to come to this God who loves you like this and has taken these measures to bring you unto himself and unto his future, then the, this morning can be the time in which you do it. We want you to come down and talk to these shepherds who are going to be down here at the front. It's also a time if you're feeling weak in your faith, You tremble. Modicum of fear making its way. It's also the time in which you can come down and these shepherds will be down at the front. We can pray with you and we can encourage you as we go back out this week into the world and help them to recognize the beauty of God by seeing the beauty in us. If that describes you in any way this morning, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and we praise God together.
Lord, we come before Thee now at Thy feet.